Hello and welcome to episode 14 of Seeing Red, a UK true crime podcast. And we have something different for you this week. Because it's Halloween, we are each going to be going through a case. Bethan's has kind of a bit of a link to Halloween. Mine has no link to Halloween, but I have picked something particularly gruesome. And it's a case that takes bloodlust to a whole new level because the victim's heart was cut from her body before an incision was made near to the aorta, allowing the heart to be squeezed and drained of blood so the murderer could drink every last drop. I'm going to take you back then to November 2001 and to a village that is famous the world over for having the longest one-word name in Europe and the second longest one-word name in the world. And it's got 58 letters and there's no way in hell that I'm going to attempt to pronounce it. Um, so to make my life easy, I'll be referring to it throughout the episode as Hlanfair PG. And I've decided I'm not going to do the Hl. I'm just going to say Landfair PG. Okay, I'll let you off. Um, I'm also not going to have a go because I'll just embarrass myself. My mum will tell me off if I say it wrong. But there is an episode of The True Crime Enthusiast where Paul does actually say the name. And maybe he can put something on Facebook and link people to that episode. But he does say it, so... We'll let him do the work and you can just call it a nice little abbreviated version. So Landfair PG, that is a recognised abbreviation for the village. Um, It's not something I'm making up. And something interesting that I did find on Wikipedia about this village was that the long name, the original name for the village, was actually come up with in the 1860s as a marketing exercise. So I thought that's really interesting. I don't know whether it is, but... Yeah, I think that's quite interesting because it literally translates like the description of what it is doesn't it it's like the white train station and this bit of i don't know something like that but i didn't know it was a marketing exercise okay so landfair pg is a fairly large village um on the island of anglesey in north wales and for our international listeners you may recognize anglesey as being the island on which prince william and princess kate as i like to call her lived before they married so um it is like I say, fairly large village, population of approximately 3,000, and it's described as a sort of village where everybody kind of knows everybody, and it's a sort of place that people just kind of, they're born there and they live there for their entire lives. There is an extremely low crime rate, and it was described as a lovely part of the world, but that was all set to change when, on the 25th of November, a Meals on Wheels volunteer visited the home of 90-year-old Mabel Lation to deliver her lunch that day. The volunteer approached Mabel's bungalow, and at first everything looked fine. She rang the doorbell and there was no answer. But that wasn't unusual because Mabel was hard of hearing. So she looked through the windows, but the curtains were shut. She couldn't see anything going on inside at all. She was a bit concerned, so she went round the rest of the property. It was a bungalow. Uh, She went round to the rear of the property and saw that Mabel's back door had been smashed in with a slate tile. She called police immediately. The police arrived and entered the house and they found Mabel sitting in a chair with a blanket covering most of her body. They removed the blanket and saw what must have been a horrific sight, something they would later describe as the most callous and brutal murder they had ever encountered. Mabel's chest cavity had been brutally cut open and her heart had been removed. There were also multiple stab wounds on Mabel's body and to the left of her there was a small saucepan splattered in blood containing a blood-soaked newspaper wrapped package which would later be identified as Mabel's heart. On the floor, two pokes had been placed deliberately to make a cross and a candle had been placed nearby. All of this pointed to a satanic ritual killing. 
Mabel, a widow who had no family, had lived on the island of Anglesey all of her life and she'd actually lived in her bungalow for 50 years. She was described as a bit of a loner, somebody who kept herself to herself, someone who didn't really have any friends and she didn't really have visitors either. So this was just an absolute mystery to the police, why somebody would want to do this. Detective Superintendent John Clayton was put in charge of the investigation and he immediately arranged to have the house forensically examined. When they examined Mabel's heart, the top of the heart looked as if it had been cut in such a way that the heart could be squeezed to drain it of all of its blood. They could see blood in the saucepan, but they could sort of see tidal marks where there had actually been quite a considerable amount of blood there, which had now been removed. Um, So yeah, the sides, the insides were coated with blood. Um, And probably the most disturbing part is that the officer who identified the saucepan and the contents of it noticed that there were lips a lip mark on the edge of the pan i was really hoping you weren't going to say something like that that is absolutely awful i can't i just can't cope with this i think as i was kind of researching it i I think i've heard of it but years ago so i didn't really have much knowledge of this case and um yeah completely agree it was it was pretty gruesome the fact that you know this is a 90 year old defenseless woman hard of hearing and she's had her you know she's been murdered stabbed and had a chest cavity you know ripped open and the heart removed and then somebody's blatantly drank that blood So the detectives knew um, it was important not to reveal too much information to the local community at this point because it was a very disturbing case and obviously they didn't have the killer so they knew that the community would be living in fear. Police commenced a house-to-house investigation but no suspicious cars uh, were seen in the area around this time and and nobody reported anything suspicious. And I do think if you're in a village like this where everybody knows everyone you're going to notice something out of the ordinary so as part of the forensic investigation police found fingerprints on broken glass and also they found some clothing fibers Um, and throughout the house there were other prints and fibers um, that samples of those were then taken the initial post-mortem that was conducted on mabel's body found that the blade that was used to stab her and cut open her chest was uh, a six inch from a six inch knife DNA results from the property hinted at a male near to the site of the break-in and police turned to a behavioural psychologist or a profiler at this point. The profiler said this would be somebody who didn't fit into normal society, no shit, (laughs) somebody who lived alone or with their parents perhaps and perhaps somebody who was displaying early symptoms of schizophrenia. Schizophrenia? I always say schizophrenia but then I don't know for definite. Say them both. (laughs) Schizophrenia schizophrenia i think i normally say schizophrenia but these podcasts have make you have a habit of saying things in a weird way so they said it was somebody that would be from an unusual background perhaps and police believed that mabel's murderer would be a local man and they set about obtaining the dna of every single man between the age of 18 and 60 in the village and also in the surrounding area A week after the murder, there was a development. There was actually a suicide and a guy, a 37-year-old man, had set fire to himself and then thrown himself from the nearby Britannia Bridge. Jesus Christ, he set fire to himself and then jumped out. Oh, God. He poured petrol over himself, lit a match and jumped and obviously uh, killed himself. So... People were at this time convinced that this has got to be the man because this bridge was actually not far from the village. It's actually the bridge that would link 
um, the island to the mainland and the village is pretty much the first village you get to when you get to the island so it was just very neat would be very neatly wrapped up if this was the perpetrator uh, the police did look into this man's background and they actually analyzed his suicide notes and in one of the notes there was reference to a poem that, which talked about the human heart and police were starting to think this could definitely be their man perhaps he'd been overcome with guilt Perhaps he believed that the police were closing in on him. Perhaps he'd provided a DNA sample and knew it would only be a matter of time. Um, however, when police did analyse his DNA against the DNA that was found in Mabel's home, there was no match and the police immediately ruled him out of the investigation. A shoe print had also been left at the murder scene and police looked into what type of shoe this could belong to. Police knew it was a trainer or a sneaker if you're from America. They found that it was actually a Levi brand and it was actually a brand that hadn't sold very well in the UK. The only place that stocked this trainer locally was in Bangor which wasn't too far away and this uh, shop had sold 53 pairs. 48 had been sold by credit card payment and 5 had been sold by cash payment. So the police set about tracing every single person who had bought a pair of these trainers in Bangor. And this was a long, slow, methodical investigation. That's how it was described by Detective Superintendent Clayton. And up to 200 officers were working on this investigation, but I personally think they did an amazing job. It was methodical, but actually they followed the right lines of inquiry. So the DNA swabs, unfortunately, didn't yield any match. So they had DNA swabbed, as I said, every man in the village and in the locality between the ages of 18 and 60, but there was no match. Four weeks later, the police decided to reveal the gruesome details of the murder to the public. They wanted the public to know that the heart had been removed and that the murderer had potentially drank the blood and that this could have been a motive for the killing. That's important information that could yield relevant information that could yield a name. Sorry for saying yield so much. I now don't like the word yield because you said it so many times. I'm not going to say yield again. <laughs> Okay, so on the 20th of December, the police turned to our favourite programme, Crime Watch. They did a reconstruction and they appealed for the public's information. And uh, this was a real turning point for the investigation because they received over 200 calls. And if you bear in mind, this is quite a small village. That's quite significant. One of the calls was from a foreign exchange student. She was German. Um, she phoned the show and she said that she'd attended a party a few months ago and one of the boys at the party had requested to be bitten by her so that he could become a vampire. The girl named Matthew Hardman, a 17-year-old, um, as this guy. And the police immediately realised that he's 17. Uh, of course, we've not found a DNA match because we're looking at people who are 18 and above. Police visited him in early January of 2002, so, you know, five or six weeks after the murder. He said he didn't know anything and he didn't know Mabel. However, his mother was actually present when they were informally questioning him at his home and she piped up and said, no, no, you do know her. She lives like just up the road and you used to deliver newspapers to her. They asked him when the last time that he delivered newspapers was and he said it was a couple of years ago. However, once again, his mother corrected him and she said it was actually a few weeks before her death. I bet he's literally like, fuck off, mum, like, stop telling them shit. Oh, my God, I love his mum for this. She just doesn't give a shit, does she? I absolutely love his mum for what she did, but I think, yeah, sense the tone, mum, fucking shut up. Mum, if you're listening to this, I, I don't literally mean that. And not my mum either, but I don't think she listens. My mum definitely listens. 
Whilst police were at his house, they asked to see his footwear. They said that we need to take all of your footwear because we need to rule it out of the investigation. And as they were bagging up his footwear, they saw a pair of Levi trainers. They didn't want to alert him to their suspicion. So um, they just said, as you have a connection to the house, as you had visited it in the weeks before Mabel's death, we, we do need to do this as a matter of routine investigation. They also took DNA from him at this point. The police were now convinced of his guilt. Matthew did only partially fit the psychological profile but there was an awful lot of circumstantial evidence and perhaps soon to be DNA evidence and I think profilers are quite controversial. I know that they have been featured and used in a number of different cases and they've led police perhaps down the wrong path so um, I wouldn't necessarily take much of the fact that he didn't really fit that profile. I'd have taken that with a pinch of salt I think. At this point, um, Matthew was just going about his normal business. The police hadn't arrested him. They were just doing their kind of checks. So they did get a surveillance team on him at this point. And what was really interesting was he was going about his normal business, but he seemed to be the only person in that village who was confident enough to walk around on his own after dark. Police arrested him then on the 8th of January and the shoes were an exact match to the footprint they obtained from the scene of the crime. Officers searched his house and they found a knife in his jacket pocket, which they believed may have been the knife that was used to kill Mabel. They also seized his computer and some clothing, because if you remember, they found some clothing fibres at the scene. So they sent that off to the lab for analysis. At this point, though, it was all circumstantial evidence and they needed something really concrete in order to link him to the crime. And they would only have 72 hours to question him. So they did manage to obtain an extension to this. And pretty much in the nick of time, they got the results from the DNA and they found that it was a partial match. So it wasn't an exact match, but they could be fairly certain at this point that that uh, would pinpoint him at the scene of the crime. Although Matthew has never admitted anything, police believe he struck on the 24th of November on the Saturday night when his mother, who was a nurse, and her partner were away for the weekend. Wearing gloves and carrying a knife from his kitchen, he walked the few hundred yards from his home to Mabel's bungalow. She was sitting in her favourite armchair, her back to the sitting room door, watching television with the sound turned up because, as I've said, she was hard of hearing. Mabel wouldn't have heard a thing as six-foot-tall Matthew threw the slate through the bottom glass panel of the back door and bent down to ease himself into the kitchen. He then walked into the sitting room and launched his ferocious yet meticulously planned attack. He stabbed Mabel repeatedly with what was described at the time as a bladed weapon. Sadly, Mabel would have been aware of what was happening and she did attempt to fight for her life and we know this because she had defensive wounds on her hands. After killing her, he moved her body to another chair and he propped her legs up on a stool. He placed the two candlesticks near to the corpse and balanced a candle on the mantelpiece. He then set the pokers in a cross formation at her feet. Matthew Hardman then removed Mabel's heart from her body, wrapped it in newspaper and placed it in the saucepan, which he then put on a silver platter. He also made three gashes to Mabel's leg, to the back of her knee, where there are some main arteries, and he drained some of her blood this way into the saucepan, um, from which he then drank, uh, before calmly returning home and acting as if nothing had happened. So who was Matthew Hardman then? We know he's 17. Um, he's a young guy. He lives locally. But he was born and lived in Amlich, 
I'm not sure I've pronounced that correctly. I think it looks like Amla. It totally doesn't fucking look like that, but it is Welsh, so yeah, Amlach, which is on the north coast of Anglesey. Um, He then moved to Landfair PG in 1998 when he was 13. So they lived in a bungalow like Mabel, and um, when they moved there in 1998, it wasn't long actually before Matthew's father had um, a fatal asthma attack and died. And some people do say and have said that you know this was very distressing as you can imagine for this guy and perhaps this triggered a mental disorder for him while at school he had a weekly paper round and he did deliver to mabel's home she would occasionally ask him to close the gate behind him um he suffered from dyslexia he didn't do very well at school um and during his subsequent trial a former school teacher described to the jury how he'd actually been quite a well-behaved boy with a good sense of humor so it's a bit of a mixed bag in terms of what he was like. His special needs tutor who helped him spoke of a very pleasant, amenable young man who was keen to learn. He would ask questions but his writing and spelling had suffered because of his condition. He was always very well behaved, the teacher said, and there had never been any disciplinary problems. Matthew's hobbies appeared to be no different from those of his peers. He liked computer games, TV, pop music, art, lads magazines and drinking with his friends. Bit naughty because he was a bit underage, but hey-ho. But the teenager also had a more unusual hobby. He had an interest in vampires and the occult, which was to become his obsession. Matthew left school at the age of 16 and went on to study art and design at Menai College, which was nearby. He had completed one term and was also working part-time as a kitchen porter at a local hotel when he was arrested in the January. It did later emerge that he had already dropped a chilling hint of what was to come during a conversation with that foreign exchange student. Um, Later in the trial when she testified she said that he believed Landfair PG was the perfect location for vampires because of the many elderly people there. If any of them died after being bitten people would just assume that they'd had a heart attack so it would be easy to get away with a murder. He also said it wouldn't matter too much if he killed a pensioner and accused the girl of being a vampire and asked her to bite him, as we know. But a friend of Matthew's said they had little reason, actually, to suspect that he would be capable of such a crime. His school friend recalled an incident when he had missed the bus and had been offered a lift by Matthew. He said, at the time I was in his house and I didn't actually see anything strange that would make me believe that he did it. After Matthew's arrest, police looked at his art portfolio and they did see lots of what they described as morbid and depressing images. But again, maybe people of that age would just do that if you're doing an art course. But there were lots of pictures that depicted death, blood and knives. So I don't know, perhaps not. A mental health worker who worked with Matthew at the time of his arrest, a guy called Chris Keneally, he worked with him when he was held on remand in HMP Alt Course in Liverpool. He said he vividly remembers the fresh-faced, engaging teenager having a huge grin when he first arrived. He said most 17-year-olds I know would be scared to death when arriving at prison and having been charged with murder. When I asked how he felt, he said, this is the most exciting thing to ever happen to me. Having spent so much time with him, I am convinced he was a paranoid schizophrenic. This guy also said he spoke with him up to 80 times and never once did Matthew express remorse for Mabel's murder or admit guilt. 
The trial took place the following year in July and the prosecution's argument was that Matthew knew Mabel lived alone. He knew that she was partially sighted as well as partially deaf and therefore she would be an easy target to satisfy his lust for blood. The defence's case was pretty weak because there was so much circumstantial and by now DNA evidence. So they said that they believed the DNA evidence had been contaminated when it was bagged up at the scene and transported to the lab. So it was quite a lengthy trial. It actually took three weeks just for the evidence to be heard. And during the trial, the prosecution told the court that Matthew was fascinated by vampires. They also elaborated on this exchange with the German exchange student. She was present at the trial and gave evidence. And she said yes, that he did ask her to bite his neck. Police were actually called at this party and Matthew was arrested. And he did say to the arresting officer, bite my neck. No charges were actually brought on that occasion, but it was obviously very concerning. So the German exchange student gave her evidence and left the court in tears. The jury took just four hours to find Matthew guilty on the 2nd of August. Mr Justice Richard said Matthew's attack had been planned and carefully calculated. He lifted the ban on identifying him and said he should serve a minimum of 12 years. I think that was mostly due to his age because that seems a really lenient sentence. So he was sentenced to life in prison with a minimum of 12 years, but 12 years is nothing. He could potentially be out of prison at the age of 29. Obviously, this happened in 2002. That's when he was sent down. So he has served a minimum of 12 years, but he is still in prison. And it's believed that's the case because he has not admitted his guilt or expressed any remorse. And I do think when somebody is sent to prison at 17, there is potentially an element of institutionalizing that person. So maybe he doesn't want to be released. Maybe that's all he knows. He spent his entire adult life behind bars and maybe he knows he's safer behind bars. Who knows? The judge told him the horrific nature of this murder is plain to all. Why you should have acted in this way is difficult to comprehend, but I am drawn to the conclusion that vampirism had indeed become a near obsession with you, that you really did believe that the myth may be true, that you did think you would achieve immortality by drinking another person's blood, and you found this an irresistible attraction. He said, you hoped for immortality, but all you have achieved is the brutal ending of another person's life and the bringing of a life sentence upon yourself. The defence told the court that two psychiatric reports had found nothing wrong with Matthew, but the judge said the possibility of a disguised mental illness remained, and it was hinted at that the death of his father, as I said earlier, may have triggered a severe mental disorder. So what do you think about the case? Do you think 12 years is lenient? Let us know on our social media pages. We'd love to hear from you. You did have a Halloween link there, though, the vampire stuff. Yeah, I did. I, I'm i not a massive celebrator of Halloween, so I did kind of think, are vampires kind of Halloween-y? And yeah, I guess they are then, so I'm happy with that. And also, I just wanted to say Mabel's murder um, actually happened about four weeks after Valentine's, so it's kind of close. Four weeks after Valentine's? Oh, <laughs> I mean, Halloween. Fuck you, Bethan. That was really interesting. I, I really um, found that intriguing, but terrifying as well. I don't like this kid. I'm glad he's in jail. So my story today is from 2012 so a little bit later than yours was vincent kershaw aged 84 was known as a fiercely independent man who followed a strict routine so when neighbors failed to see him as usual they called the police for a welfare check they hadn't spotted him going about his usual routine for about a week 
and the police were also quite worried, so they broke into his semi-detached home where he lived alone. And sadly, the neighbours were right to be worried. Mr Kershaw's body was found lying in the kitchen, surrounded by unpacked shopping bags, and he had been beaten to death. Vincent Kershaw, often known as Vinny, was well known in the local community, and people have spoken fondly of him. Whilst he was frail and elderly, he was a very proud man. He ensured he went to the shops himself and he took care of himself. He didn't need anyone like a carer to come into his home. His wife, Bridget Kershaw, had gone into a care home a few years previously as she was suffering from Alzheimer's and Vinnie had visited her regularly at the home until her death in July at the age of 83. A neighbour has been quoted as saying he was a lovely old man and would always stand at his gate. I think he knew what times people were coming and going and he'd always give you all the gossip. He knew everything about everyone because he was a long-standing resident. Another neighbour said Vincent was a nice fellow. He and Bridget had no children together, but they were very devoted to each other, and they'd lived in the house for about 50 years. After she was admitted to the care home, he would go and see her every day. I last saw him a couple of weeks ago, when I was bringing in my washing. He was looking okay, a bit frail and he was shuffling about, but he was okay for his age. Vinny, who used to be a wagon driver and then was a mechanic before he retired, was known for being a bit flash with his cash. At the time of his death, he didn't drive, but before that, he used to drive a silver BMW sports car. That was before he had his licence revoked due to his age. And after that point, he would start using buses and taxis when he'd run his weekly errands. He was described as always being very smartly dressed, and he was known for carrying large wads of cash around. This is quite normal, to be honest, with people of his generation, but his friends were worried. He was so well known for having large amounts of cash in the house that people had said to him, put it in the bank or someone will hit you and take it from you. And sadly, this would end up being true. So many old people keep loads of cash at home. And I think, yeah, it just makes him a massive target, doesn't it? It's ridiculous. Like people have said about him that his wallet was bulging. So even if he's in the shop and he takes his wallet out to pay for something, anybody around him is going to see all that cash. So the police had broken into Vinny's home on Sunday the 14th of October and they found him on the floor in the kitchen. His house keys were still in the back door but there was no sign of forced entry. Around him were the bags of shopping that hadn't been unpacked, and they believed that he had actually been dead for over a week. His wallet was missing, but as his house was quite the hoarder's cave, it was really hard for them to know if he had been burgled or not. The receipt from Tesco with the shopping was dated the 4th of October, and so this kind of meant that basically they had a starting point of where to look, and they were able to look at the CCTV and piece together his final movements on that last day. This reminded me of when you were talking about um, the Jill Dando case and you can see the CCTV of him going around. I was just thinking about that. That's so weird when you said it. And I don't know why, I just find it always really haunting when you see the CCTV moments before something awful is going to happen and that they're just oblivious to it, of course. You can find the CCTV of Mr Kershaw going around and honestly, it's so sad. He just looks like any other ordinary old man. He's wearing like... One of those checked trilby hats that granddads wear and he had his jacket on. He could just be anyone's granddad. The police could see him on the CCTV on the 4th of October. They had also seen him collecting his pension from a local post office. This was about 10am and he was then seen buying his groceries. Detective Inspector Ian Butler from the Major Incident Team released a statement where he said, A team of officers are still at the scene and we are working on establishing a motive. There are a number of lines of inquiry and at this stage we cannot rule out robbery. Mr Kershaw was known to carry large amounts of cash when he was out and when his body was examined there was no sign of his wallet. We are keen to piece together Mr Kershaw's final movements. 
We know that he travelled by bus and taxi in Rochdale and Shaw in Oldham. If anyone saw Mr Kershaw that day and has any information as to his movements leading up to the discovery of his body on the 14th of October, please phone the police. The information you have, no matter how insignificant you may think it is, may be vital in this investigation. The police were able to discover that Mr Kershaw had taken a bus into town, he popped into his favourite cafe and then visited the post office at 10am to collect his pension. He had a look at a few shops, including a local charity shop, and then he'd gone to Tesco Express. This was about half past midday before he got his taxi home. Now, you know we fucking love the detail, Bethan, so I want to know everything that he bought, please. Just like when we covered Jill Dando case. Oh, um, I don't know. Fine. <laughs> I am sorry. Sorry to everyone that I've let down with that. I really apologise. Not only have you let us down, the listeners, you've let yourself down. <laughs> Anyway, so the local community were naturally incredibly worried about what had happened, especially considering he was Vinny. He was someone they all kind of thought well of. The police tried really hard to reassure people that they were doing their best to find whoever had done this. There were increased police patrols in the area and people were advised to approach a local officer if they had any concerns. The police also stressed in their appeals for people not to openly display their valuables, to be vigilant and to be mindful of carrying large amounts of cash. And these warnings were especially aimed at older people and like we said, they tend to hold cash in the house. One person of interest that the police spoke to was 57-year-old Michael Fearon, who people mentioned had been a friend of Vinnie's and was often seen at the house. They determined that the two men had met at the care home where Bridget had stayed and soon Michael was a frequent visitor to Vinnie's home to help him out with odd jobs around the house. Michael helped the police with their inquiries because he knew a lot about Vinnie's regular routine and habits. He explained to the police that the last time he had seen him was on the 1st of October when he'd paid some money into the bank for Vinnie, but he hadn't really seen him since then, and he was happy to share with the police that he was even trusted enough to have keys to Vinnie's home. Michael Fearon joined the many mourners who celebrated the life of Vincent Kershaw at the funeral. He sent his sympathies to the family, and he even called with condolences, and seemed really upset by what had happened. However, as I'm sure you've all guessed by now, this was not really the case. Michael Fearon was arrested on the 22nd of October because the police had spotted his car on CCTV close to Vincent Kershaw's house on four separate occasions on the day of Vinnie's death. His car was also seen close to the post office that Vinnie had collected his pension from and it was spotted driving towards Mr Kershaw's home around the same time as the taxi was taking him back. Fearon denied any involvement in the killing, but in November he finally admitted to the police that he had a gambling problem and he had accidentally killed Vinnie in a robbery gone wrong. He had stolen £3,000 from the home. Fearon claimed that he hadn't intended to kill his friend. Instead, he had meant to hit him so he was unconscious and wouldn't know who had done it, and then he'd steal the money, but he'd hit him too hard and it had gone wrong. Now, this could be believed except for the fact it was clear from his injuries that Vinny had been hit around six times in the head. That is really brutal, isn't it? I mean, there's no way you could disguise that as, yeah, just a bit of an accident. I just meant to knock him out six times. That's nearly frenzied, I would say. It came out that Michael Fearon had used the key that he had to Vinny's home to get him, and he'd hidden in a cupboard waiting for Vincent to return from the shops. 
He dressed up as a ghost with a sheet over his head with eye holes. Oh my God, Beth, and this is so fucking Halloween. That's amazing. But obviously, respect to the victim. Honestly, though, what an absolute dickhead. <laughs> like, he put a sheet over his head and dressed up as a ghost to scare an old man. That's really cruel. And to be honest, that could have actually resulted in Vinny having a heart attack anyway. So 84-year-old Vinny returned from the shops and Michael jumped out of the cupboard dressed as a, as a really shit ghost as well. I'm not being funny, a sheet over your head. He hit him on the head with a rubber mallet and this caused fractures to Vinny's cheekbones, his skull and his nose. And like I said, he hit him six times. That is not, I'm going to knock someone out so they're unconscious. But a rubber mallet, is that going to do any significant harm? Obviously it did, but I'm like, what the fuck? Yeah, but it's a fucking mallet. Like that's a pretty, that's like a hammer. And I know it's rubber, but it's still pretty solid. And it had it, it had caused fractures on his cheekbones, his skull and his nose. Michael then stole the wads of cash and left the old man to die on the floor. The post-mortem revealed that Vinny had lain on the floor for up to two days in agony before dying. It must have been absolutely terrifying. Oh my God, that is just horrible. That's horrific that he was there for two days. That's just, if you were, you know, a member of his family or a friend and you loved him, to think of those dying 48 hours where nobody was there and he couldn't call for help that's appalling um situation and you would feel so guilty but it's nobody's fault other than the murderer and the callous nature of him leaving Vinny alone and dying and bleeding on his kitchen floor is what makes me think that actually Michael Farron didn't care about Vinny he called him his friend but he must not have done whilst Vinny saw Michael as a friend this was just not the case of the younger guy In my opinion, he wasn't just trying to knock him unconscious. He meant to kill him and he wanted his money. He was in that much debt. Michael Fearon then burned the rubber mallet in a derelict building nearby and used the money for his gambling debts. Michael Shorrock, QC defending, said of Fearon, who had previous convictions for fraud, it is relevant that he has reached the age of 57 with no convictions for violence. He had a pathological gambling habit, which, sad to say, was a core factor in the build-up to this offence. The CPS and the police have worked hard to build a strong case against him and consequently he has pleaded guilty to murder on the first day of his trial. He will now face the consequences of his abhorrent actions. Everyone is entitled to feel safe and secure inside their homes regardless of their age. The CPS will not tolerate crimes against older people and we are determined to bring those who commit such crimes before the courts. So at the trial then he did at least admit to it on the first day of the trial But he still didn't really get any sort of leniency from the judge. The judge, Michael Henshaw, told him at Manchester Crown Court, People of Mr. Kershaw's age should be protected and respected. He trusted you and you abused that trust in the most horrible and treacherous way. So on that Tuesday, Michael Fearon was jailed for a minimum of 25 years. The prosecutor said that the October killing was intended to get Fearon out of financial mess and it was obviously important enough that he wanted to cover his tracks and he tried to disguise himself. The prosecutor said he was a compulsive gambler and he added he had a business on the side dealing in construction and building but he was short of money. He needed to pay his suppliers and the workmen that had been doing work for him. He thought he would steal from Vincent Kershaw to get him out of that financial tight spot and it was obviously important enough to cover his tracks and disguise himself. In mitigation, Michael Shorrock, his um, defence QC, had said if he intended to kill, he wouldn't have taken a rubber hammer, and he's genuinely sorry and remorseful. So similar to what you said, he thought the rubber hammer wouldn't do enough damage, 
but it would. Detective Inspector Ian Butler from Greater Manchester Police said after the case, this was a pre-planned and savage attack on an elderly man who relied on the person who murdered him. Thankfully, justice caught up to Fearon and he will now face a long time behind bars. The judge had said that Fearon abused the elderly man's trust in a treacherous way. So the judge said to him, although you were almost 30 years younger and strongly built, you decided that you needed to incapacitate him. The damage you caused must have been obvious to you at the time. When you left, he was alive and you knew from the sound of his breathing, but you didn't do anything. The fact that you attended his funeral was in particular a very hurtful incident for his family and for him. Mr. Medland had said the defendant knew Mr. Kershaw was dying when he left him. From the physical injuries and the changes in his brain, it's plain that he didn't die quickly and he must have been lying there medically alive, but unable to move for possibly two days. So Michael then sort of said later, it has been explained to me that intending to knock someone out has an intention to cause serious harm, but I didn't intend to kill Mr. Kershaw. In a victim impact statement, Mr. Kershaw's stepson, Anthony, described the intolerable suffering felt by the family. I'm still struggling and I'm tearful at times, he said in the statement. It was very upsetting and shocking as I saw the extent of Vincent's injuries. I almost didn't recognise him down to the blunt force. I wish it was a nightmare that I could wake up from. And I strongly believe that he, Viren, had opportunities to change the outcome not just before the death, but after. It also sickens me that he only admitted to his involvement when the evidence was stacked against him. So that was my my Halloween version. What did you think of that? Really disturbing case. I think the the most disturbing bit, as I said, is the fact that, you know, Vinny could have lay on the floor in pain, in agony for two days, waiting to die, essentially, knowing that and knowing there was nothing he could do about it. Exactly. And saying, as your defence, oh, I just meant to hit him on the head once and that was it. Well, then wouldn't you go back and make up some story of popping in and then you find him and you're you're the one who saved him? No, this Michael Fearon guy was just horrible person i hate to say it but i do think about that rubber mallet and i do sort of think maybe he did think i don't want to kill him i just need to kind of incapacitate him Uh, i don't know the fact that he then used it six times does say to me that he wanted him dead and i think what's really good in this case is that you know this guy's been sentenced to 25 years as a minimum and i think that's um acceptable yeah i think it's a pretty fair sentence to be honest as well so there we go. Happy Halloween, everybody. Um, if you are celebrating doing anything tonight or if you did anything on the weekend, do share everything with us on Facebook or Instagram. Tag us in your pictures. You know we'd love to see it. Um, so as ever, we've got a few people that we'd like to give shout outs to. We have had a number of reviews on iTunes. So I'm going to name check you guys now. So we've got Johnny LL, Mugelli, Mazzy 20 JJ1975, Stillicide TH, and possibly the best username I've ever heard coming up, Grumpy Shit Flicker. Thank you for all of your comments. A couple of you have mentioned about the sound. Um, we completely agree. And thank you so much for continuing to support us and stick with us. And we are constantly looking at ways that we can improve it. And once again, we will be reinvesting in the audio equipment that we've got. So please stick with it. We will get better and better with that. Um, but we've got loads of positive comments around the content of each episode, how well researched it is and the interactions that we have with each other so thank you for the reviews we wholeheartedly mean that you know the negative ones the positive ones uh if you haven't reviewed us yet 
please do. We'd love to hear your comments. There's a few people as well on social media that we wanted to give a couple of name checks to. So we've got Marie Harris, Ruby Tuesday, Jason Collier, Lorraine Ledwell, Darren James, Emma Skillen, Jordan Day, Mariam Steinbaum, Chris Clark, Ryan Butler, Jess Carter, Sam Mapes, Jason Abercrombie and Lee Buswell. And Andy, who we mentioned a few weeks ago, who was starting his podcast, the No Remorse podcast is now out. Um, So he's got three episodes up at the moment that you can listen to. Well, at the time of recording, so you can go and have a listen to him. And finally, we would like to let everybody know that we have a partnership with Just Killing Time. And Bethan's going to tell you a little bit about what they do. So you might have seen on social media recently um, about the Just Killing Time box. It's like a monthly subscription box and it's got all different true crime um, goodies. Yeah, memorabilia, stickers, cards about different criminals. They've basically set us up with a code that we can give to you guys so if you'd like to sign up for a box with them you can do so you can also buy one-off items as well so coming up to christmas it's quite a handy option so mark when you're getting me my christmas presents that might be somewhere to look at so yeah mark's going to tell you about the code and how much it is and basically we'll we'll just share some information about them on social media as well with some links so if you do want to have a look at them you can do so so we have an exclusive code for our listeners if you enter seeing red pod at checkout you will get 10 percent off and that is 10% off for the lifetime of your subscription as well so it's not just off the first box which is pretty decent all that remains for us to say is happy halloween thanks for listening again and we will be with you again next week bye bye